literally those are the things that people do not think about when they when you see on the news that somebody was shot and killed no one is sitting in their home like oh is there a child who's going to take the child how's the child going to eat dinner tonight how's the funeral going to get paid for how's the family member going to get to the funeral are there any religious restrictions on that person that will cause cost one way or the other like nobody's thinking about that was this person the breadwinner in the home where's the family going to live now welcome to unloading a podcast created to share community solutions for gun violence in America. Unloading was created by Gun Violence Solutions of the American Medical Women's Association. I'm Kat, a pre-medical student in Chicago and assistant director of the American Medical Women's Association. And I'm Anorvi, a fourth-year medical student based in New York. And we're here to show you how individuals across America are responding to gun violence in their communities. Our guest today is Adara Combs. Adara Combs served as supervisor of the juvenile division at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office from November 2020 to January 2022. In this position, she oversaw operations aimed at juvenile justice and reform. On January 20th, 2022, Adara was nominated to lead the Office of the Philadelphia Victim Advocate. This office was introduced by City Councilwoman Kenyatta Johnson in 2020 to serve as a community for victims of gun violence and other crimes. Thank you for joining us today, Ms. Combs. Um, would you like to start by telling us about your path to law and how that led to juvenile justice? Absolutely. You can feel free to call me Adara. Um, my path to law. <laughs> so when I was growing up, um, I was always an advocate, um, always advocating for different things, even like in the lunchroom as a child. Um, so as I got older, uh, people would say like, oh, she's going to be a lawyer. Oh, she's going to be a politician. Um, and the sciences were never my jam. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> so I, I spent some time just thinking about like what it is that I would want to utilize to frame what would be the rest of my life, right? Like I always was fearful of going into a line of work that wouldn't be fulfilling, that would be something that I didn't find interesting. And as I reflected upon my life and just thought about what it is that I found the most passion in, it was helping people. So I was torn between going into politics um, and going into law. Um, and I decided to kind of take my let some time in college to do different internships to see what it is that I wanted to do. So I interned for a place called Midpen Legal Services, which is in Lancaster, which is where I went to college near Franklin and Marshall. Um, and they did pro bono legal services. So I spent some time there. And then I ended up interning for the district attorney's office here in Philly. Um, enjoyed both of those experiences, but wasn't still sure at that moment that I wanted to really go to law school. So um, I ended up taking time off in between college, law school, and worked at the DA's office full-time um, as a juvenile diversion coordinator to see if it really was what I wanted to do. I did that for, I guess, a year, um, and then ended up enjoying it, enjoying the work, really seeing how, as a prosecutor, you could have an impact on different people that are in the criminal justice system, um, both the offender and the victim and witnesses, um, so on and so forth. And I decided to make that my career path. Um, and it also spoke to me personally, um, given that I have experienced victimization in my life, as well as people in my family, people in my community. Um, and I always wanted to be the advocate that I wish I had. Um, so that is basically what led me to this work. I became a lawyer to be an advocate. Um, so I always knew that my, my career path was kind of going to take 
this type of turn um, as opposed to going into uh, you know the private sector or going into corporate law, things of those sorts. Thank you. Um, so I know that you grew up in Philly and you know you talked about your own experiences with victimization and obviously we're here to talk about gun violence solutions. So I guess your time as a native Philadelphian, in what ways have you seen gun violence evolve from when you were a kid, when you were growing up to now? Wow, that is uh, an amazing question um, because it has evolved to a point that I don't think I ever foresaw, but I feel like growing up in Philadelphia and I always lived in Philadelphia proper. So I didn't live in the suburbs, I lived in the actual city um, and was going around to different parts of the city because my friend, my family is predominantly from the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia. Um, I grew up in Northwest Philadelphia in Mount Airy um, and I currently live in Germantown. So I spent a lot of time in that area as well. And I was never fearful growing up of traveling within Philadelphia ever. Um, there were some places that my parents preferred I not go, obviously, as parents do, um, but it never was for fear that I would be shot. That was never the fear. Um, I feel like now, as an adult, um, traveling the city on my own, in my own car, going home, going to and from work, going to different places, I truly do fear for my own safety every single day. Um, and that I think that has to do with the rising level of gun violence in our city, as well as the ri rising level of violence and crimes fueled by hate within our country um, that we just saw this past weekend. Um, I don't think that I ever would have foresaw that in my own city that I've spent 35 years living in that I would truly live in a state of fear every single day. Um, and I think that comes from the fact that when I was growing up, you know, you knew people, you saw people that did things that you weren't supposed to do, right? Like you were told, you know, that person is, sells drugs or that person, you know, is violent or whatever. And you would know that, right? Cause you just, you lived in a community. So you would see it, um, or at least you were aware of it. I feel like when I was growing up, even though you knew that existed, there was kind of a different um, code of the street for lack of other terms um, where I didn't feel like as someone who had nothing to do with that way of life um, that I would ever be placed in harm's way because of the actions or choices of others to engage in those types of lifestyles. I feel like now we're existing in a city um, and a lot of cities are existing this way where it doesn't really matter. Um, there's a level of recklessness, a level of senselessness, um, a total disregard for human life, um, and a total disregard for whether or not the person that is harmed or the people that are harmed are children, elderly, women, young men, babies um, that have absolutely nothing to do with what it is that you know, you're engaging in, they're just innocent bystanders. I don't think that I ever would have thought that in a, a city of, in the city of Philadelphia, that it would be totally uncommon um, for women, children, um, and, and babies to be harmed by gun violence on a regular basis. Um, whereas now that seems to be commonplace. Wow, that's very powerful. Um, so during the past two years, uh, during this horrible pandemic that just won't seem to go away, uh, the country has seen um, you know, an increase in violence. And so I'm wondering how the pandemic has shaped the types of violence that you're now seeing in Philadelphia. Let me, let me phrase this this way and give a little bit of a backstory. Prior to being the supervisor of the juvenile unit, I, was, um, I did sex crimes. So family violence and sexual assault was the unit that I was in, that I, came, that I came from right before being in juvenile. And when 
COVID hit, I literally accepted an assistant supervisor position in juvenile as things were shutting down. So I transitioned back into juvenile during COVID, which was very odd, um, but it wasn't that crazy because I had came from a, a background in juvenile justice. But I say all that to say, during that time, I was overseeing juvenile sex assault cases. So cases where there were um, juvenile offenders who sexually assaulted others, mostly juveniles, but I mean, if they had sexually assaulted an adult, that would have fallen under our purview as well. Um, but I also oversaw cases where there were juvenile victims and adult offenders um, at the initial onset of the case for the preliminary hearings. The one thing that I thought to myself, I said, when we come out of this quarantine, we're going to have an influx of sexual assault disclosures by minors because they're not in school. Um, they're not engaging with people who would otherwise be mandatory reporters or people that they would trust, counselors, principals, teachers, friends, um, school bus drivers, so on and so forth. They don't have anyone to tell. And exactly what I thought was going to happen is exactly what did happen. Um, so when kids started to go back into schools, we started to hear about more assaults, whether they be sexual assaults or whether they be abuse um, that we were not hearing about that were taking place during quarantine. So that's one thing. Um, I think that when you place people in a state of despair um, and you place them in a state of uncertainty where they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and there's anxiety, mental health issues that are raging, um, a sense of uh, hopelessness, I think that that can certainly be a fire to ignite um, violence within a city. And I think that's exactly what did happen. Um, it was basically, it felt like a free-for-all, um, so to speak. Um, and that, that, that to me is a direct correlation to what's been going on. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think that it's kind of just like a multi-layered thing um, that has had various impacts on the types of crimes that we, you know, we've seen. It's almost like one public health issue created another public health issue. It absolutely did because you just, you have people. And I, I would always say to myself that I felt very fortunate um, during the period where everyone was under stricter, um, more strict restrictions because I do live in a home where I feel safe and I feel cared for and I have, I don't know, have to wonder where my next meal is going to come from or if I'll be able to afford to pay my bills if my job is at stake. And there are people that were living that way. And that creates a level of pressure um, it exasperates mental health issues that already exist that people may not even be aware of. It just has so many impacts that we can't even fathom. And if you're someone that doesn't live with those things and sit with those things every single day, you might not even be able to wrap your head around it. Um, but I know that when I would talk to people, um, families of either, of mostly of victims, and they would talk to me about their experience during COVID, it was just something that I never, I never thought about. Um, from their lens because it just wasn't the lens through which I was looking. So now a lot of your work um as the lead of the Office of the Victim Advocate, you are working with these victims um, a lot more. Just, I guess, to back up a little, how is this office conceptualized? How was it created? So the office was created um, after a ballot question um, in an election here in Philadelphia that basically asked 
um, citizens to vote on whether or not the Office of the Victim Advocate should be created. Um, and the city voted yes, for the most part, which is why the office came to be. Um, and the reason why it was created was there was a, a, a feeling within the more grassroots um, victim advocacy agencies or victim service agencies that there was an, a bigger need for cohesion. Um, there was a bigger need to have a larger seat at the table that maybe those that they as individual um, agency providers um, would be able to fill that there was a need for a higher level of advocacy that any one of them could actually do because they're busy doing the actual service providing, the counseling, the therapy, the court accompaniment, um, helping with VCAP, reimbursements, things of the sort, um, that they don't necessarily have the time, space, funding, personnel, um, mental space, <laughs> human capital to do those um, bigger picture advocacy. Um, so the office was created to fill that void. Um, so after the the vote and the election um they went on kind of a hunt to figure out who would run the office and how it would look um, a part of the office's creation was an advisory board that would be created within the office um, where we would invite people from all of the partner agencies so you know one of the, the things we were discussing as we were creating the, the time for this meeting was connections to um other agencies within the city. That's literally a part of the design of the office um, because a part of my task that's a part of the, the actual legislation is that I will create an advisory committee and based with that will be a partnership between agencies that I invite to sit on that committee. Um, so we'll be working in partnership to identify what are the holes within the city that we can fill? What are the things that we need to advocate for collectively, whether they be in city government, whether they be in state government, whether they be federally? What things are happening that impact Philadelphia uniquely than the rest of our neighboring counties within the state of Pennsylvania? And how do we have a bigger voice um, to let our state legislatures and those that make the rules that we're playing by um, aware of that disparate impact to Philadelphia. Additionally, in talking to those folks, we've been identifying what are the systemic issues and barriers within Philadelphia that need to be addressed um, that aren't necessarily the topic of legislation, aren't necessarily particular mandates, but more so like what are people saying they're interfacing with when they're engaging with law enforcement, when they're engaging with the district attorney's office, when they're engaging with city officials, when they're engaging with the medical examiner's office, when they're engaging with those who seize property, um, toe lots, just different things that we don't think about when we think about victimization. And there are a lot of little systemic things that are happening that are negatively impacting those who have been victimized that can be somewhat easily addressed if you identify them and actually do something about them. That's basically why the office was created, to do that larger level of advocacy, to create more cohesion, um, and also to try to provide some level of training um, and awareness to victims' issues and victims' rights. Wow, that's awesome. So how do victims get connected to the office to receive all of these services? So at this moment, <laughs> it's been a lot of I won't say word of mouth, but a lot of the um, agencies that I've been partnering with and a lot of the advocates um, and leaders within this space that I've been working with have been pointing people in my direction. Um, we've been doing a lot of media, especially at the onset of the office, just letting people know that we exist. Um, folks can certainly call me. We have an email address um, and I try to make myself as accessible as possible. So while we're working on um, 
a more community-based, not community-based, a more community-oriented um, office space. As of right now, if someone were to contact me and they need me to do something with them and coming out to them is what's easier, I'll certainly do that um, if that's what's necessary. Uh, or we can meet at a community space, but I've been trying to be as accessible as possible to folks. So honestly, whatever way they need, whatever way they catch, whether that be on the phone, whether that be the email, um, whatever it is, it really to me is a all hands on deck, no approach is the wrong approach um, kind of vibe, because I think we owe that to people who are experiencing trauma to just be, meet them where they are, however they are. Are there any agencies that actually refer, so for example, for gun violence victims, you know, they're there at the scene of the crime, maybe the police, they know about the Office of the Victim Advocate, and they're able to refer them to you guys. Is that something that's in place yet, or is that something um, you might foresee in the future as a way, you know, to connect the victim to your office? So that's an interesting question. And that's a part of the cohesion piece that I was talking about earlier, because the office was not designed to provide direct services, right? So we don't provide counseling, we don't provide therapy, because there are so many agencies that already do that. And there's a lot of funding that they're already tapping into that my office does not want to be a contender for that was not the the goal when the office was created. Um, So the the referral, I guess, lane kind of works both ways, depending on what the need is, right? So what's been happening thus far is if someone is is traumatized or someone um, is victimized rather, and, or let's say they're the co-victim of a homicide and they need someone to help them, you know, locate the detective that's assigned to their loved one's case, or they need help just kind of navigating that space or maybe getting in contact with the district attorney's office, that would be a referral to me, right? Somebody would say, hey, Adara, we have this person, they don't know who's assigned to their case or what's going on, or they feel like there's a communication barrier, or they're just not vibing with the detective, or they keep missing each other in communication. I would then say, okay, cool, I'll help them with that. But if somebody were to contact me and say, hey, Adara, this person needs counseling services because of the trauma that they've undergone, well, then I would be referring out to one of the agencies that does that work. Thank you. You're welcome. I guess now, um, one of the closing questions, what sorts of, or what type of policy do you foresee advocating for in this new role and in this new office? So like I mentioned before, it's, I think it would be difficult to say, this is the policy, right? Like this is the topic. More so um, identifying, it would be easier to identify the type of uh, uh, legislation and policy that we would be advocating for. So what I've been doing and spending a lot of time doing in the past several months is identifying what are the overall issues that everyone is dealing with and where are the where where do they lead to right like who do they lead to who where does the policy need to be created from um and i think that one of there are a few things that we've identified um one of them is how uh reimbursements are handled at a state level um and the requirements for uh victims to apply in the process um that can be cumbersome it can be exclusionary um there are a lot of rules that exclude a lot of people for example when it comes to funeral expenses um as of right now uh, the way that it's written, if someone is um, seen to have been a part of their own demise, their family cannot seek assistance with paying for their funeral expenses. Now, the problem with that is if I am burying my loved one, I am incurring that cost, right? And 
I am now being punished because based on a police report, it seems as though my loved one had something to do with something. But those decisions are made so like vaguely and so arbitrarily um, that you're not even sure like where the information is coming from that's made that decision. But it's a super impactful decision because if you look at the demographic of the people that we're losing at alarming rates, they're typically people who are not those that would typically have large life insurance policies um, or come from places where that is even a viable option for them and their families. Um, so it seems like you're just creating a, a different type of trauma and re-victimizing the families in that way. So that's something that we're working to address. And also the process of that as well, um, in terms of the time frame, in terms of the paperwork that people need. I think that there is a high expectation on individuals who are going through traumatic situations to have all their ducks in an order um, and in a line when that's just not a realistic um, expectation to have. So that's one area um, that we're looking to figure out how we can have a voice and how we can impact the policy within that space. Um, aside from that, we are also looking to better and strengthen the relationship between community and law enforcement. And while that will not come by way of legislation, it will more so come by way of policy, by way of partnership, by way of training, um, including the community within that process. Um, so that way they don't feel like they're being left out and like their voices aren't being heard. I think it's very impactful um, when I talk to um, people in law enforcement who, you know, I was able to build relationships with throughout my time as a prosecutor. And I say, hey, like, I know that you don't intend to make this person feel this way. But this person right here, not this fictitious person, not someone that I'm just making up as a part of a hypothetical situation, this very real person said that you made them feel X when you said why about their loved one. And I think when you have those conversations, they can be very powerful. Um, and I think that's a very uh, simplistic way to address the breakdown in communication between law enforcement and community. So that's something that we're seeking to have an impact in as well. But aside from that, like I said, we are definitely working in partnership with the agencies, with, that, with law enforcement agencies, with um, grassroots agencies with the community-based agencies to identify what the additional things are that we should be holding up um, and working towards collectively to see some impactful changes in a positive way for victims in Philadelphia. Thank you. Wow. I'm, I'm so excited for this office. Um, on a personal note, uh, the reason I got involved with gun violence was because my sister, niece, and nephew were shot and killed last year. And like you said, like it's very hard to navigate the whole situation, the financial costs. You know, we had to play, pay for a triple funeral. Um, and just navigating the legal system and then additionally, um, she left a, a one-year-old daughter. So navigating like social services and, um, you know, the adoption process and everything, it can be very overwhelming. Luckily, my mother is a lawyer, so that definitely helps. So we're very blessed in that way that she knows how to navigate. But, you know, most families don't have an attorney. Most families don't have the financial means when these situations arise. So um, I'm very grateful for the, the Office of the Victim Advocate. And I think you guys are going to do some great work. 
I thank you for sharing that that part of your life. Um, and I'm sorry to hear about your loss, but that's literally those are the things that people do not think about when they when you see on the news that somebody was shot and killed. No one is sitting in their home like, oh, is there a child? Who's going to take the child? How's the child going to eat dinner tonight? How's the funeral going to get paid for? How's the family member going to get to the funeral? Are there any religious res- restrictions on that person that will cause cost one way or the other? Like nobody's thinking about that. So we just wanted to thank you for coming. Um, I don't know if you have final thoughts that you'd like to share for the podcast. Um, I think that if I had to share some final thoughts, I would say, first of all, thank you um, for not only inviting me to be a part of this podcast, but also thinking to elevate the need to be discussing um, gun violence and how folks from all across the country Um, can be involved not only within their own city or within their own state, but also nationwide, right? Like we are losing people at a rapid rate nationwide. I know it's more heavily impacting larger cities like Philadelphia, um, but nevertheless, we are literally waking up each and every day with less people on earth because of gun violence. So it is something that needs to be elevated. And I appreciate you guys for taking the time and even the thought and the care and the energy and the effort. Um, I think you were saying that you're in your third year of med school. Did I get that right? And during all of that, which a friend of mine just finished med school is about to begin her residency at Brown. So I know how stressful it is. So to even think to take your little bit of spare time um, to use it to elevate the voices and elevate the need um, to be discussing this means a lot. So thank you guys for the work that you are doing. Um, But what I would say in terms of final thoughts is I think it's time for us to shift the narrative from believing that this is an inner city problem, this is a black and brown people problem, um, to this is another type of epidemic like it's 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 literally becoming a health crisis um within the city of philadelphia and with uh other cities similar to philadelphia and with that we have to address it nationwide we have to address how easy it is for people to get guns and senselessly take lives on an every single day basis um so it's all hands on deck like i said there is no approach that isn't correct as long as that approach is pushing the ball forward and pushing us to safer communities in each of our cities so that way our kids and our families can grow up and feel safe within their own homes. Because as a Philadelphian, I don't think I would have ever said this before, but I don't feel safe. Um, And no one should feel unsafe within the city that they grew up in. Um, when they're just trying to live their life as you know, a person going to work, spending time with their family, doing things that they like to do. You shouldn't feel unsafe going to your car. You shouldn't feel unsafe stopping at a stop sign. And that's how people feel. So we have to do something. So I appreciate you guys for doing your part. Um, and if anyone is interested in connecting with my office, they can certainly do so. Um, the email address to contact my office would be victim.advocate at phila.gov. Again, that's victim.advocate at phila.gov. So folks can feel free to reach out to me. I check that email each and every day, all day, just like I check all my other email accounts. Um, So you will certainly be answered. Um, But I appreciate you guys for the work that you are doing. Thank you so much. To learn more about the Office of the Victim Advocate, you can visit ova.pa.gov.